Marcus Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality every Tuesday at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Hey everybody, Magnus here. It's part of my mantra that I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. Those are my three main subjects. But there are some shows you'll probably never hear me talk about around here. Those are Doctor Who, Downton Abbey, Breaking Bad, and probably several others. And the reason for that is actually quite simple. Fans of those shows never shut the fuck up about them. Now, maybe I'm weird this way, but if you hype something up too much, I'll avoid it like the plague because I'm sick of hearing about it, if nothing else. Those shows are good examples of what I'm talking about. If for no other reason than I don't want other people to view me the same way I view the people who spray their shorts over those shows, I'll never watch them. And not only that, I'll actively encourage other people not to watch them too. All I can tell you is, be careful how much you hype something. You may end up with a reverse outcome. Hey, your attention please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host Magnus, and lately I've been talking a lot about Elseworlds comic books. Been going through what I've called the Elseworlds series. As a matter of fact, I'm nearing the end of it. Next week is the final part of this mini-series, but in general, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. As I say, though, lately, it's been all about Elseworlds. Now, Wikipedia says that Elseworlds is the publication imprint for a group of comic books produced by DC Comics that takes place outside the company's canon. The imprint presents narratives in which existing characters or storylines are introduced to an entirely new idea or concept and often put into alternate timelines or realities. Gotham by Gaslight, featuring Batman, is considered to be the first Elseworlds story. The Elseworlds name was copyrighted in 1989, the same year as the first Elseworlds publication, and supplanted the previous Imaginary Stories series that employed the same premise. 
Unlike its Marvel Comics counterpart, What If, which bases its stories on a single point of divergence from the regular continuity, most Elseworlds stories instead take place in entirely self-contained continuities, with the only connection to the canon DC continuity being the presence of familiar DC characters. That's where the Wikipedia entry ends. In simpler terms, you could basically say that Elseworlds takes a familiar character or concept and puts it into a completely different context. That's about as simple as I can make it. This week's show is all about Kingdom Come. Kingdom Come is easily one of the most famous and well-remembered Elseworlds stories ever published. For some reason. But that's that stuff. I'll come back to that later. And so, into the summaries we go. This is Kingdom Come. Writer is Mark Wade and Alex Ross. Artist is Alex Ross. And letterer is Ted Klein. In this Elseworlds story, for nearly a decade, members of the Justice League have abandoned their roles as superheroes after the rise and strong public support of a new superhero named Magog, who has no qualms about murdering in cold blood. In the ensuing decade, a newer generation of superpowered metahumans arise, and these metahumans engage each other in destructive battles without true cause and with little distinction between heroes and villains. The narrator, a minister named Norman McKay, receives apocalyptic visions of the future from a dying Wesley Dodds. The Spectre appears to McKay and recruits him to help pass judgment on the approaching superhuman apocalypse. An attack on the parasite, led by Magog, goes awry and much of the Midwest becomes irradiated, killing millions and taking out a large portion of America's food production. Coaxed back into action by Wonder Woman, Superman decides to return to Metropolis and reform the Justice League following the Kansas disaster to rein in the new breed of heroes. He manages to collect reformed new heroes, such as Avia, the daughter of Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, and former heroes including Green Lantern, The Flash, Hawkman, and Dick Grayson, now known as Red Robin, among others, except for the Batman, one of the most prominent of the old guard. Superman makes a personal visit to the Batcave and hopes to sign up the world's most dangerous man, but the Batman refuses to, to join Superman's intervention as Batman resents him for leaving the world ten years ago, abandoning the superheroes at the crucial point that the superhero population needed a role model the most. Batman also worries that Superman, that his idealist notions are outdated and that his interference will only exacerbate the world's problems, insisting that strategy and delicacy is required, not force. He interprets Superman's plan as an example of the strong exerting their will upon the weak, something which he will not be part of. Apparently Batman thinks absolutely nothing about learning martial arts and using that to beat the shit out of a bunch of criminals. Nevertheless, in response to Superman's Justice League being a new piece on the chessboard, Batman activates his network of agents that have been long in the making and is the equivalent to a large personal army, made up largely of the younger breed consisting of second and third generation heroes like Jade, the daughter of the first Green Lantern, and Zatara, son of Zatanna and the grandson of the first generation hero whose name he shares, while trusted veterans, such as Green Arrow and Blue Beetle, are chosen by Batman to be chief in command. Both Superman's army and Batman's army consist of non-powered and super-powered members. 
Lex Luthor is still alive and well, and has organized the Mankind Liberation Front. The MLF is primarily a group of Silver Age Justice League villains, including Batman foes, Catwoman and Riddler, Vandal Savage, King, leader of the Royal Flush Gang, as well as third-generation vi villains like Ra's al Ghul's successor, I have no fucking idea how to pronounce this guy's name, who's Bruce Wayne and Talia al Ghul's son. Grant Morrison couldn't be reached for comment. The MLF works to wrest control of the world away from the heroes. Superman's Justice League gathers more captives than converts, and his prison, nicknamed the Gulag, is filled to capacity almost as soon as it's built. Superman designates Scott Free, the former Mr. Miracle, as Warden, aided by other heroes including Big Barda and Captain Comet, and works to persuade the inmates that their methods are wrong-headed and dangerous, but his entreaties fall upon deaf ears. With hostile hero villains like 666, Kabuki Commando, and Von Bach locked up together, pressure builds. Meanwhile, Superman, urged on by Wonder Woman, reacts with increasing inflexibility toward the towards the inappropriate behavior of the metahuman community. He learns that Wonder Woman's ardent military stance may be influenced by her recent exile from Paradise Island. In the eyes of the Amazons, her mission to bring peace to the outside world has failed. And we all know that people who lose their jobs absolutely don't have any kind of personal feelings about it. At first, Batman and his cadre of heroes seem to enter into an alliance with the MLF as a united front against the Justice League. Now aligned with the Batman, Luther plans to exacerbate the conflict between the League and the inmates of the Gulag, where the ensuing chaos will afford Luther an opportunity to seize power. As a master of espionage and deception, the Batman utilizes the Martian Manhunter to discover that an adult Billy Batson is under the villain's control after retiring from superheroics due to his inability to cope with the world's increasing brutality and being brainwashed by Luther, who plays, a, who plays on, Batman, on Batson's fear that he may be as evil as the other metahumans. Batson, who becomes Captain Marvel when he utters the word Shazam, which is a lot better than God damn it, is the one being who's capable of matching Superman's powers. When the Gulag's inmates riot, killing Captain Comet, Luther unwittingly reveals to Batman how he intends to use the brainwashed Batson to, to break open the Gulag against the Justice League. Now having his answer, Batman's forces ambush Luther and his conspirators. Although Luther and the MLF are captured, Batman's unable to restrain the brainwashed Batson, who transforms into Marvel and flies to Kansas, carrying out the last order in his head. Open the Gulag and unleash chaos. With the superpowered prisoners rioting out of control outside the Gulag and Wonder Woman leading the Justice League army to engage them and kill, Superman's confounded by how this escalation of events was brought on by himself. Thus he rushes at super speed to the one man he, he knows has the answers and crashes through the ceiling into the Batcave. Superman debates heatedly with Batman, trying to make him recognize they may be facing the end of the world. Batman at first justifies his inaction by saying the world would be better off if all the metahumans destroy each other. Superman re rejects this notion, pointing out that if all human life is sacred, then logically that includes superhuman life. Superman knows that Batman will act because his entire crime-fighting life is based upon the desire to prevent the loss of human life. Being slightly moved by Superman's sen uh, sentiments, Batman tips Superman off with the information that Captain Marvel is under Luther's control and is on his way to the Gulag. 
Without saying goodbye, and the minute B Batman's back is turned, Superman races to the gulag, leaving Batman to remark, So that's what that feels like. But upon arrival, he's struck down by Captain Marvel, who also causes a breach in the gulag, freeing the population, thus inciting war between Wonder, Wo Wonder Woman's Justice League and the metahuman prisoners. The Spectre and Norman McKay look on as Wonder Woman's League wages war with the prisoners, and Superman's kept at bay by Captain Marvel. Batman's army arrives on site as an intervening third party, with Bruce Wayne leading them into battle wearing a flying war suit of his own invention. Although Batman's forces aid the Justice League in quelling the riot, he also works to restrain the League from killing any metahuman. However, he fails in this as Wonder Woman kills Von Bach in the act of attempting to crush Zatara, one of uh, Batman's force. This brings Batman into direct conflict with Wonder Woman, because leave it to a woman, she can't do anything right. As conditions worsen, United Nations Secretary General Wormwood authorizes the, the deployment of three tactical nuclear warheads hardened against certain metahuman powers. While this action will destroy hero and villain alike, the UN feels it has no choice in the, in the matter. If humanity is to survive, metahumanity must be destroyed. An armored Batman and Wonder Woman clash in the middle of the war zone, taking to the skies where they see the, the incoming stealth bombers, piloted by the Black Hawk Squadron, delivering the nuclear bombs. Dropping their own conflict, they manage to stop two of the missiles, but the third slips past. Captain Marvel continues to batter Superman by screaming Shazam repeatedly, calling down his magic lightning bolt but dodging before it hits, thus leaving Superman to bear its brunt. However, as Marvel says the name again, Superman grabs him and the lightning finds its mark. Marvel turns back into Billy Batson. Holding Batson's mouth shut, Superman tells Batson that he's going to stop the remaining bomb and Batson must make the, an important choice. Either stop Superman and allow the warhead to kill all the metahumans, or let Superman stop the bomb and allow the metahumans' war to engulf the world. Superman tells Batson he must be the one to make this decision, as he's the only one who lives in both worlds, that of normal humans, as Batson, and the metahuman community, as Captain Marvel. Superman releases him and flies off to stop the incoming bomb. Batson, his mind now clear of Luther's influence, just in time for the resolution of this story, says the name and turns into Captain Marvel. Flying up, he grabs Superman, flinging him back to the ground. He continues up and intercepts the missile, having found a third option. Captain Marvel shouts Shazam three more times in rapid succession, and the lightning bolt sets off the bomb prematurely, killing Batson in the process and, and in so doing, creating a cross-shaped mushroom cloud. The person who's a man, and also a superhuman, dies for all of humanity. Yes, sir, you have to wade through the symbolism in this story. Despite Marvel's sacrifice, most of the metahumans are obliterated in the explosion, although some survive beneath a force field generated by Green Lantern and his daughter Jade, and others are teleported away at the last second by fate. Superman, though outside the force field, is virtually unscathed, though he does not at this time realize there were any other survivors. Giving into his rage at the tremendous loss of life, Superman flies to the UN building, which is shaped suspiciously like the Hall of Justice from the Super Friends, and threatens to bring it down atop the delegates as punishment for, this, for the massacre, and for reacting in, in such a fearful and cowardly way to the metahuman war. Because after all, it's not like all of humanity was afraid of their own survival or anything. The surviving metahumans arrive, but Norman McKay is the one who talks Superman down, pointing out how his appearance and behavior are exactly the sort of reasons that normal humans fear the superpowered. 
chastised and ashamed, which is exactly how I like to see Superman, Superman immediately ceases his rampage. He's handed Captain Marvel's cape, the only remnant of the hero, and tells the UN representatives that, he, that he'll use Captain Marvel's wisdom to guide, rather than lead, humankind. Superman ties Captain Marvel's cape to a, to a flagpole, um, which I'm sure pissed off whichever n uh, member nation had their flag on that flagpole, and raises it among the other flags of the member nations of the United Nations, suggesting that this role of guidance will be more political and global in nature than the classic crime-busting vigilantism of the past, because God knows mankind wasn't, wasn't already concerned about superhumans taking over. In the epilogue, as part of the af aftermath of the metahuman civil war, the heroes actively strive to become fully integrated members of the communities they'd previously tried to, to distance themselves from. Masks are abandoned. Wonder Woman's exile from Paradise Island ends, and she becomes an ambassador for superhumanity, taking the survivors of the Gulag to Paradise Island for rehabilitation, because that's going to work so much better than the Gulag did. Batman abandons his crusade and becomes a healer, opening his mansion as a, as a home for orphans. I'm sorry, that's what Chris Nolan thinks. Opening his mansion as a hospital to care for those wounded by the destruction of Kansas and the ensuing violence. He also reconciles with both Dick Grayson, also known as Red Robin, and his son, Yibin That's not Damian Wayne, that's all I know. Superman lashes himself to a giant plow and begins the arduous task of restoring the Midwestern farmlands, devastated in the Justice Battalion's attempts to capture the parasite. He even comes to terms with his past as Clark Kent by accepting a pair of glasses from Wonder Woman and shares a kiss with her before she returns to Paradise Island. According to the Wikipedia summary, it's a fitting parallel to the end of the generational conflict that started the war, as both men have come full circle in their lives and adopted the vocation of their fathers, Thomas Wayne the doctor and Jonathan Kent the farmer. Norman McKay resumes pastorship of his, con of his congregation, who apparently didn't mind him going missing for all this time, and preaches a message of hope for humanity. Among the congregation is Jim Corrigan, the Spectre's human host, and Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the co-creators of Superman. <sighs> As I say, this is one of the most highly regarded Elseworld stories out there. And I truly don't know why. I'll tackle the story first. Basically, every single major plot advancement proceeds from Superman making wrong decisions. Superman shouldn't have turned his back on mankind, because doing so only discouraged his peers to stop trying to live up to his example. That opened the, opened the doors for a bunch of violent non-heroes to go around wrecking shop on everything. But, once he was gone, Superman should have stayed gone, because Superman coming back only exacerbated tensions within the superhero community, but also between superhumans and civilians and it accelerated the threat of a superhero apocalypse. But once he came back, 
Superman should have followed Batman's advice and used softer, less confrontational tactics. Using force only galvanized his enemies into resisting and heightened tensions even more. Imprisoning people who don't do things Superman's way, apart from being extremely out of character, that was a recipe for disaster. But once the disaster struck, Superman shouldn't have allowed the Justice League to fight the Gulag inmates. Instead, they should have cordoned them off within the local area and found other means to subdue them. A direct fight only gave humans the excuse they needed to launch nukes. But, having survived the nuclear strike... Well, anyway, you, you get the point. Literally, every single decision Superman makes in this story is inexcusably wrong. Now, I've said again and again how much I love Mark Wade's work in this show. All right, um, I'm a, I'm a Mark Wade fanboy, but there's a there's a limit to how much I'm willing to blame him for this. I'm not completely willing to hang all of this on Mark Wade. He was stuck trying to make this story by Alex Ross somehow work. Wade does the best he can with what he's given. He attaches as many incentives for Superman to make these bonehead decisions as possible to give the reader some sympathy for Superman for acting like such a nitwit. But at the end of the day, Superman is inexcusably acting like a nitwit. And... There's a limit to how much you can soft-pedal that. Now, Wade contributed more than just putting dialogue into people's mouths. But at the same rate, he didn't exactly plot this son of a bitch. And for Wade's participation, this story works as well as it can. The issue is that the underlying concept of this story is irreparably flawed. You can't polish a turd, but... Wade gives it his best shot, and this feeds into the strange tendency a lot of people have about wanting to put stories where Superman's defeated or dead or just flat out gives up at the top of their greatest stories ever told lists, and it's just baffling. In this story, Superman abandons humanity, personified by his Clark Kent identity, and the world is almost destroyed because of it. Okay? When all's said and done, all superhumans, including Superman, give up the capes and costumes and alternate identities because that's somehow the better fucking idea. Yeah, we spent decades establishing these symbols as beacons of hope, strength, fear peace, or whatever else, so let's just abandon them so we can all sing around the fucking campfire, munching granola, and singing Kumbaya. And this is your favorite? Now, part of me wants to think the main reason this story is so popular is, is because of the art. And I used to think Alex Ross's art was really cool, but then I turned 14. I've got a lot of problems with Alex Ross as an artist. And at the top of the list, 
His commitment to photorealism by using photo models for his art, I, I, I can't even call it a, a double-edged sword because that analogy is commonly understood to mean there's a good side and a bad side. Over-reliance on photo models is just a stupid fucking idea, no matter how you look at it. First off, comics have a visual language that's entirely their own. They always have, and part of that is highly idealized human bodies. Men are impossibly chiseled and built, and women have impossible curves and, and tatas and... Buildings are impossibly tall, and oh yeah, nuclear fucking explosions don't make cross symbols to further your dramatic needs in the type of semi-real-world style Kingdom Come inconsistently strives to achieve. On the one hand, this is the real world, more or less, as we see it in Kingdom Come, and people have normal proportions, and buildings and skyscrapers usually have standard designs and architecture and dimensions to them and all that jazz, but... On the other hand, this is a world where beings with capes and superpowers are common sights to behold. The conflicting tones detract from the story rather than enhance it, and all of this is amplified by the art. Otherwise, photorealistic people are impossibly taller than everybody else. It's That's an example, I and mean, I guess my point is it's just a, a bizarre and neurotic presentation, but... What really ruins Alex Ross for me is his inability to put together a fucking comic book page. If Ross shows a few people just standing around talking to each other, he does alright. Not great, but okay. But if there's a battle going on, he loses all sense of balance and proportion and loses the storytelling on crafting these elaborate scenes with realistic and therefore really shitty lighting where you can't tell what the fuck's going on or who's doing what to whom. Now, I'd be the last guy to argue the merits of Jack Kirby, but for as overrated as I think that guy is, at least he could convey all or most of a story or a scene without relying on text. You can follow his action scenes just with the art. You don't need anything else. And as I say, I'm not coming at this from the point of view of being a Jack Kirby fan. I, I'm not a Jack Kirby fan, but even I can see that this guy, Jack Kirby, that I don't even like all that much, even he does it better than Alex Ross. On the best day Alex Ross ever had, he's never been able to manage the type of easy, more simplified storytelling that 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 other artists are able to just do seemingly effortlessly, and this and this goes down the list. You got Jack Kirby, you've got Kurt Swan, Steve Ditko, Neil Adams, Jim Aparo, on and on and on. All right, any one of these are more able to tell to tell the story visually without having to rely upon the text. But Alex Ross can't do that without the text in an Alex Ross story. You're fucked. This is why I think Alex Ross will always find work for posters and variant covers, but should be kept far the hell away from interior work until he learns more about the fundamentals of telling stories in comics. 
because very little of his work has ever impressed me with his storytelling capabilities. Apart from that stuff, it's hard to stay focused on the story anyway when you know Russell includes some completely pointless and distracting cameo or Easter egg into the background of even the most serious scenes. Here are just a few examples. On page 17 in my trade, you've got Jack O'Halloran driving a busted-up cab in one panel, and then in another panel, you've got Hollis Masons under the, under the hood. On page 19, you see Adam West's Batman costume. Page 20, you see Jimmy Olsen as Turtle Boy. Page 32, there's Beppo, Comet, Crypto, and Streaky. On page 36, you see that painting, American Gothic, not once, but twice. Page 50. I don't know who that guy is. He's prominently uh, seen in that, that cable car. I don't know who he is, but he looks like... I think he might be Neil Posner, a, a former DC editor who passed away. He's modeled on somebody, that's for sure. And Anyway, page 84. You've got Rorschach. Page 86. Page 84, you've got Rorschach. Page 86, you have Marvin from the Super Friends and also the Village People. Page 87, you've got The Shadow, The Question, and Rorschach again. Page 135, Power Man. Page 165 is Mark Wade himself. On and on and on. This is nowhere near an exhaustive or comprehensive list. There are just these are just a, a few I was able to find as I flipped through my trade at random. It's hard to get into the story when Bjork is standing next to Norman McKay and having a fangirl meltdown that Superman's come back. And people, I don't think I'm the only one who feels this way. Check out Alex Ross's bibliography sometime. Look at how little work he's really done over the years in terms of full interior art. And all of this leads into the biggest gripe I have with Alex Ross. He's constantly held up as the best that comics have to offer. But, and maybe I'm alone on this one, I refuse to respect him as an artist, until he has the balls to do more work within continuity. I mean, look at the fucker's resume sometime, will you? It's a virtual laundry list of non-continuity stories. Seriously, check it out. Look it up. Look at everything he's done. At DC, for example. And then look at how little of that is in continuity. Even his World's Greatest Superhero series, some of his most highly regarded material... Even that has no real ramifications on continuity. Anyway. So, I guess to wrap up, to me, this story is a pretty fucking poor representation of Superman. It does a good job of conveying Superman's awe and majesty, but kind of sucks at little things like showing Superman to be even halfway competent. I, like, like I said, I don't hold any of this against Mark Wade since he was pretty much a hired gun 
for this story, and he did the best he could to make it all work. No, I, I blame Alex Ross. The guy's talented, but he needs to put down the paintbrushes for a while until he develops a, a better mastery of storytelling in comics. Simple as that. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection. 
as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in 4 minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Grom. I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, Gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No. No, no, that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. 
you can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.